0: I am of the belief that yoga and the guru tradition are linked together. And this is how yoga will stay alive in India and will continue to be passed down. Um, The guru is not a person. The guru is a um, stream of knowledge, which is being passed down through an individual. They are a vessel or the carrier of knowledge of information. and. The ability to articulate it in a particular way, which will be helpful for people.
1: Hello, namaste. Secular greetings to you, Jay Ganesh, whatever your greeting is in the world. Thank you so much for being back for another episode of For Soul's Sake uh, here today in a different setting. We've been in yoga studios, we've been in sound studios. Today we're in a temple, and um, I'm just really honored to be in this space, but more so that you're joining us on a conversation which is on about candid, spirituality, honest, um, unfiltered, yeah, all the good stuff, but without all the woo-woo, basically, Uh, but thank you so much for being here, really honored that you're joining us to listen, learn, and grow together, and today I'm honored to be with an amazing, amazing soul, someone who I deeply revere, because um, many reasons, which I'll get into, but today we're joined by Eddie Stern, who is a highly respected and renowned yoga teacher, author and speaker with over three decades of experience in the field of yoga and spirituality. He's widely recognized as a leading authority on the Ashtanga yoga method and has trained thousands of students and teachers around the world. And he's the author of several critically acclaimed books on yoga, including One Simple Thing, a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life which offers an insightful and accessible exploration of the benefits of yoga for both body and mind. He's also the founder of the Broom Street Ganesh Temple. It's where we are tonight. A Hindu temple in Soho, a community-centered space in New York City that offers a variety of classes and workshops focused on the integration of yoga, philosophy and community building. Eddie's teachings draw on the traditional wisdom of yoga and the latest research in neuroscience and other fields offering a unique, and I mean it, a unique and holistic approach to yoga practice that is both practical and deeply transformative. It's my great pleasure to welcome Eddie to this podcast, and uh, let's see, we'll explore insights and experiences on yoga, spirituality, and the human journey. Eddie, thanks so much for being a guest on for soul's sake.
0: Thank you, and thank you for that very generous introduction.
1: Uh, Definitely not generous, it's completely apt. Um, You're a, let's just face it, you're an icon of the yoga world. People respect you globally, Um, but there must have been a path to that, and I want to know from being a Western-born, American, male-bodied person, uh, where did that all start for you? What was the kind of turning point to say, this is
0: my life now? Well, the introduction to yoga happened when I was about 15. Uh, The regular practice of yoga began around the age of 19 or so Um, but in between those years I was on a search looking for meaning in my life and the path that the society considered to be the one that you take at that time was that you go to high school you graduate you go to university or college as we say here in America hopefully you graduate and then you get a job If you don't go to college you don't get a job and your life is basically bereft of meaning. (laughs) That didn't (laughs) cut it for me. (laughs) Right. I I didn't see where there was meaning in any of the things I was learning in school. Uh, And I wasn't interested in going to university, because I didn't want to be in more classrooms. I had one teacher who I felt I was learning something from. Her name was Mrs. Benditson. She was an English teacher of mine in 10th and 11th grade. And... The first book she had us read when I entered into her classroom was Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, and which is, of course, the story of the Buddha. And she said, the three most important questions you can ask in your life are, who am I, what am I doing here, and what do I do next? And that, for me, gave me a structure for contemplating my existence. And what age was the story? And this was, I was around 16, I guess, 15 or 16. Well, um, and so from that time, I just started thinking about those things and kind of abiding by those things and always questioning who I was, even when I was allowing myself to change identities. So if I was going to be a punk rocker or, or a goth or a hippie or whatever, it was like, who am I as this new person? And if this identity is not really me but there's someone inside me who's watching and choosing this identity and they're going to play it out. Uh, when I was around, um, was conscious for a 16 year old. Yeah. You know, well, I think, you know, kids are conscious, you know, and like they're a lot more conscious than, than we are because there's a lot less filtration happening. So I think that at those ages, it's actually the best time to think about who you are mm-hmm. and what you're going to become. Before you're molded into what society is demanding at that time period, this is what you should be when that's going to change from generation to generation. So around the time I was 18 or so, I met a guy named, um, Jim in a bar. His name was Jim Riley, and he was an interesting guy. He was a white guy from Philadelphia. He was not terribly tall. He was around six, two or six, four. But he'd been a professional basketball player for the 76ers, part of their championship team. When he stopped being a basketball player, he decided uh, he was lost. He didn't know what to do. So he biked across the country. Um, and this was in the days before the internet or GPS or anything. So he just had maps that he would buy of each state until he got to California. By the time he got to California, he'd figured out what he wanted to do with his life. And so when I met him, he said to me, you know, uh, if you had $10,000 a month, which back then was a lot of money, and now is also a lot of money, what would you do if you didn't have to think about money at all? What would your passion be? What would you live by? And I thought, that's a very interesting question. So I thought about that, and what I decided was, well, I'm only 18, so I don't have to decide certainly you know with certainty at this point what it's going to be but how about if whatever I'm doing in this moment of my life I do it like there's nothing else I'd rather be doing and so that's what I started doing um just do the thing that I'm doing as if nothing else mattered that was the most important thing for me to accomplish so I had those two things I had this who am I what am I doing here you know what do I do next and then I had this idea of passion And, you know, putting your passion into whatever you feel your purpose is in that moment. And then shortly after that, I found yoga. And then when I found yoga, um, all those ideas coalesced into here's actually the thing that I want to do with my life. And I was 20 at that point. And so with that feeling of here's the thing I'm going to do with my life, then that was it. And then that's that's when the path started. And then now I'm on that same thing still. So I'm continually on that same thing now. And it's become a little bit broader and I learn more things and stuff comes in and stuff goes out. But um, I'm still in that same direction as I was when I was 20. And that was, you know, now I'm I'm on my way to 56. So there you go. 36 years.
1: Yeah. You said things are coming in, things are going out. What's something that you're currently either working through or something that you are currently processing as a, an, as a, a continually sp- aspiring spiritualist? What's
0: Well, uh, for example, a year and a half ago, I decided to go to college. And, uh, so I'm doing that. That's far right. How's that going? <laughs> Great. What are you studying? Uh, I'm studying science. And so I um, have to turn in my dissertation next week. Um, so I'm at the end uh, wow. um, in my last semester. So that's one thing that came in. Now I'm deciding to go to school, get some structured learning. You yeah. dropped schooling at an early age, or was that... Yeah, I went to high school, and that was it. I was going to go to university. I have um, a 12th standard, as they say, in India, standard. and, and uh, 12th grade, as we say over here in America. Wow. Um, and that was it for schooling, and then the rest was in India. So I really like it. It's an Indian university, and um, I'm... You know, all my professors are basically in Bangalore. A couple of them are in the States, but most are in Bangalore. It's great. I love it. So there's that, and... um you know my interest in science is just about a decade old of being involved with those types of things so um you know there are practices that you do when you're younger or at least that i did when i was younger that i no longer do because my body doesn't um you know my body's not capable of doing them anymore so those get substituted out for other types of practices you know whether it's asanas or pranayamas or different meditations or whatever so um but it all falls under the same umbrella of um of awareness of yoga of what are you doing with your mind you know what do you uh, how are you looking to the future with your body because you want your body to carry you through even if you know some people say you're not the body some people say you're completely the body some people say you you are and you are not the body whatever it is you're going to be in it until you're not in it anymore <laughs> and during that time you want it to be in good health and good shape so i'm i practice now and i have been for the past years i practice now for the future i practice now for when i'm 80 or 90 you know um, if i should live so long and um so that's and i've been in that frame of mind for a little while now like i want to make sure that i'm mobile and independent to the best of my ability at that time of course nature has her own course you never know what's going to happen to you anything could happen um, but still, preventative is good. But he, yoga is largely preventative as well for, in, in terms of mental states and emotional states, not just physical things. But if you, like Krishna says in Gita, you know, if you become friends with your mind, you know, it will become your best but friend and support you. Um, so, and why do you want to be best friends with it? Because times are going to be hard at certain points. You're going to get challenged by stuff by adversity or by failure or by blame or by sickness or by loss or whatever it is. So you're going to want your mind to be on your side at that time. So you don't get overwhelmed. You have to practice outside of crisis situations in order to have equilibrium when you're in a crisis or when you're in a challenge, you can't jump into a challenge and think you have all the tools when you haven't practiced them. You know, if you're, if, if you're not a lifeguard and you're at the ocean, you know, and someone's drowning. You don't know how to save them, save them unless you've been trained to do that. And so you also don't know how to save yourself unless you've trained yourself to save yourself when you need to. And those things are going to come up sometimes every day, sometimes once a week, sometimes once in a lifetime, but stuff happens. And so yoga is largely, I mean, not completely, but largely it's preventative for future suffering. Patanjali alludes to that also. And in, in a yoga sutra, he says, heyam dukam anagatam. Um, the, uh, you know, the not the avoidance, but the diffusing of suffering yet to come. You know, whatever suffering is going to come because suffering is a certainty. You can learn how to diffuse it now by having the right tools and understanding your mind, and having a mind which has particular character traits as well. Um, so all of the japa that you do, all of the kirtan that you do, all of the meditation that you do, all the asanas that you do, or that we do, or that I do. All of these things are changing the um, substratum of the traits of the mind, because the mind is the thing which is going to take on characteristics that you put into it. So if you're deliberate about the characteristics that you put into this field, which is a neutral field, it will take on the form of what you put into it. And so what do you want to grow? That's what you put in there. And that's what sadhana largely is.
1: My spiritual teacher, he he told me last time he visited um, London that right now as a, well, if I can call myself young, uh, as a young man, I don't think so much about death. It's like having a ball, a glass ball in the center of a table and it's firmly placed there. And it's it's true, I I hardly think about death if I'm honest. But he said, as you progress through life, slowly the ball starts to roll towards the edge of the table and it becomes a constant thought. When you're talking about using yoga, using even mantra as preventative or using it as a tool to prepare your consciousness for an ultimate moment, um, that's something that has definitely been crossing my mind more and more because, um, you know, it seems that a lot of our life is peaked at key moments. Even, let me be straight, um, conceiving a child, the consciousness in which you're is described in the scripture, that that is that consciousness is what's being transferred into the in the womb of the mother, and um, similarly with death, the time of death. You know, we according to the Gita it talks about how we we go through different bodies like pairs of clothes, and at the time of death, the consciousness prevails.
0: Um, there we go. Yeah, and also where your mind is at the time of death will determine where you go next. Yeah,
1: and it's interesting that many people think I'll think about it at that ultimate point. The truth is that you are what you think about constantly. And if your mind is based in, if your body is based in unhealthy states like mine has been for maybe 30 years, I'm trying this, this is my year, people, I'm really making an effort. Um, Then eventually the prevention will help or even with the mind being strayed at the moment of death through chanting, maybe you'll think of something higher. Yeah. I want to talk about your celebrity status because you- My personal celebrity I mean, you've had, you have an influence in the world. I mean, I know you're connected with Madonna. I know you've, you're connected with Coldplay. There is a connection there. Mm-hmm. Um, when meeting people of material status, they've definitely succeeded in the world. Um, what was your kind of method or what was your kind of approach to sharing uh, authentic spirituality or even just yoga? How did that kind of come about or what was the, what was the underlying connection there? What was the kind of method of teaching
0: like well the method of teaching is going to be the same for everyone uh you give people your best and you hope that they have a good outcome Mm -hmm. and um if they don't there's nothing you can do and um if they do then you're happy so that's all you know teaching is teaching and you can't teach anything you know you can't teach something in a special way to someone because you perceive them as being special that was my question exactly it's not going to work right and you will become inauthentic and then um those people and probably other people will end up not wanting to study with you anyway because you're a fraud so the best thing to do is be yourself teach the best you can teach what you love and um you know and um if you're in awe of someone because you think they're important you know they're in the room with you not because they think they're important they're in the room with you because they think that you have something that you can teach them okay. and so you should try to do that Um, rather than try to make them, you know, feel special. And kind of in line with that, we're seeing yoga explode
1: across the world, and it has been doing since maybe the 80s and 90s as well. Um, But with that, there's been a lot of, in my opinion anyway, watering down and uh, just to try and make it accessible and relevant. And that, of course, has its place as well. Um, What's your opinion on that? What's your opinion on making things less, quote-unquote, authentic? You
0: know, I... I don't know what authenticity is. I mean, it's a word that, you know, we use a lot and that I use every once in a while, but the authentic yoga, you know, I don't, I don't know what's authentic and what's not authentic. I think people can be authentic nor they can be inauthentic. Um, I study texts with great regularity, what I do with, you know, with my time. Um, and so the yoga texts are where I learn things and from, from teachers in India as well. So for me, that's the foundation of yoga. And a lot of the hybrid yogas that you see being taught these days, I don't know a lot about them, you know, and I've tried one or two of them, like a class here or a class there with a friend and H. E. Mohan often said about these types of things that the proof is in the pudding. And if you do something and it makes you into a kinder person, kinder towards yourself and uh, towards other people, it quiets your mind, it keeps you focused, it's helped you helps you to fulfill purpose in your life, etc. Then it's probably working, you know? Well, something good is happening. And if it's not doing that, if the opposite is happening, then, you know, it's probably not a real yoga system. Now, that doesn't necessarily need to be applied just to modern things. It can be applied to old things as well. There are practices that maybe you were taught in the sixties or seventies or eighties that um, you know, people thought of as being authentic yogis but maybe weren't really turning out real yogis. Right. People who were very good at doing things with their bodies. So it's hard to say. Um kind of leaves it a little, little open ended and subjective though, doesn't it? I mean people are subjective beings you know and everyone is going to have their own experience of what they perceive of as reality and everyone should be privileged to do that and and then not impose their ideas of what reality on are on on everyone else but allow people the space to have their own experience as well and I say reality very loosely because we all know we only perceive an extremely 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 small sliver of perception uh which is just a reflection of the grand reality so what is yoga then yoga is a lot of things but in one sense yoga is a um a a vehicle or a mechanism for allowing people to expand their perception so they can have some type of experience what that experience is is going to be deeply personal And we do see that throughout time, that experience is replicated in many people because the same types of words are being used. Awe, gratitude, undying devotion, limitless love, transcendence, unity consciousness. All these words have been used through multiple cultures, multiple time periods. And you know, in science, if you take multiple measurements over time, like if you have different data points that you collect, yeah. and the data is the same at many different points, you can make an assumption that there's a great association sure. between the thing and the outcome. And so that's what we see with a lot of the spiritual traditions the mystical traditions uh, that have stretched back thousands of years. We have a lot of data points, uh, D is assigned to the fort, of people having similar experiences, which mean that a lot of these practices are delivering on what they promise. Um, So for each person who has that experience, they need to have it for themselves so they can feel it. It's not enough to say, well, everyone's having that experience. So it's true. So I'm just going to repeat all the words that I hear. That's not going to be satisfying. No, you need to do stuff. You need to have your own experience. The practice you do is going to be the vehicle to allow you to have that experience. And then you'll share it. You'll speak about it. Hopefully you'll be happy and all those types of things. So, I think that that is, that maybe falls a little bit under the authentic umbrella. Um, If the practice is going to lead you to that particular experience of self, of God, of the universe, of whatever, then that's going to be an authentic practice. And uh, then if you continue to live your life in accordance with that, then you will be an authentic person. Um, the practices that don't do that, but do the opposite of that. So they uh, cover up who you are. They don't identify what is God. They cover up who you are. They they give you a, a false identity. They increase a, a a narrative that you're superimposing on yourself because you don't know who you are. They lead you into consumerism or into commercialism or into being super product oriented for or the sake for of me. being, you know, for the sake of the you know, some fulfillment which is yeah. which is transitory. Um, this happens in a lot of different, you know, spiritual, mystical, yogic or religious traditions. And so then, okay. So do we blame the practice? Do we blame the person? We don't blame anyone. We just say it happens, mm. you know, it just happens. And so be aware that it happens and watch out if it starts to happen to you. Try to catch it early.
1: Would you say I same for like finding teachers as well, like gurus. And because I think that's a big thing You know, like we live in an age where people are starting to reject. Guru reject teacher and saying no. It's all about what we call in the scripture "chaitya guru," the guru within. Do you, think, yeah. you know people are in in danger of being misguided because they're not?
0: Yeah. So someone said to me, friend uh, mine said to me yesterday. Um, we were talking about uh, you know uh, attendance at yoga schools and what's going on in uh, different spiritual traditions around the world, and he said, "Well, you know, we're we're living like." Um, in a post-guru era where, you know, the guru is being dismantled and all this stuff. Yeah, right. Um, And probably because of a lot of the abuses of the gurus and, you know, the Netflix shows that have come out and all this kind of stuff. So I hadn't heard that phrase before, the post-guru era. As far as I understand it, the yoga tradition has stayed alive because of the guru tradition, and those two things go together. The guru tradition and yoga tradition are hand in hand. Who passes down, who has passed down yoga for thousands of years are the gurus. And are they all all all-knowing and enlightened? No, they're not. Some of them are just very good at yoga, and some of them know a lot about yoga, and that's what they pass down. And this is one of the definitions of guru. You've mastered a certain thing. You haven't necessarily mastered everything, but you've mastered this thing and you can pass it on. Um, and there are lots of examples and lots of cultures of great teachers and um, great you know, carriers of faith who their lives were not perfect in other ways. Hmm. And in fact, sometimes their lives were immoral in other ways. And now I'm not speaking about any present teachers. I'm just speaking, generally, Broadly, yeah. Um, Very broadly. Um, Yet there was something inspiring that was transformative for culture, society, or the time period that they lived in. So, okay, let's just leave all that aside for a moment. Um, In terms of the Guru tradition, I am of the belief, that yoga and the guru tradition are linked together. And this is how yoga will stay alive in India and will continue to be passed down. Um, The guru is not a person. The guru is a um, stream of knowledge which is being passed down through an individual. They are a vessel or the carrier of knowledge of information and the ability to articulate it in a particular way which will be helpful for people. And also, you know, we see in Patanjali Yoga Sutra that the, um, you know, when there is purity in the mind through Shaucha of a teacher, then the words that they speak will land in the hearts of the devotees and their lives will be transformed. That purity of mind is not there, then the words won't transform. So if you have a teacher and whatever their they are as an incarnated being whatever but um if their words land in your heart and you become transformed that means that they have the capability of transmitting something through their words or through their actions or through something that is going to affect you and then keep that teaching carrying on you know you've entered into their stream of knowledge and now you are part of the stream enough. um so now in america I do not believe that the guru tradition works for Westerners. I believe this is, and again, I could be wrong about everything I'm saying. Yeah. Usually I am just as a disclaimer for your (laughs) podcast. I'm usually wrong about everything, but which is why I keep talking. So (laughs) the, I think that the guru tradition is an Indian cultural phenomena how interesting and that's where it works interesting. i do not think the guru tradition works in the west for westerners because we don't have the mindset for it culture's so different we don't understand it and um so i've said in the past and i'll say it again i think a good model for us to try to follow here is spiritual friendship not try to be gurus for the western yoga teachers uh, but that doesn't mean it has a teacher You don't guide people to do things in a way that, according to your tradition, is the correct way of doing things, so the tradition is maintained or the form is maintained or something like that. So, um, you know, being a spiritual friend doesn't mean that you're not a teacher and that you don't give guidance and that you don't make corrections. It just means that you don't put yourself up on the seat of, I am the guru. Uh, because that Mm -hmm. is not a part of our culture. It's not part of our training. Um, Now, people say the same thing about me. I run a a Hindu temple. I started a Hindu temple. I'm a white guy in Manhattan who had the audacity to do Pratishtha of Ganesha. So, you know, people probably more often than I know about say, what does this guy think he's doing? You know, he, you know. So, and the answer to that is, I have no idea. But... I, What I did have was the blessings of my teacher and of the Acharyas and the pundits from India who did the Pratishta, I had their blessings to take care of Ganesha here. So it's not so much that I installed a temple and I built a temple and I'm running a Hindu temple. No, what it was was we give you the blessings and the necessary initiations and the necessary knowledge to take care of Ganesha here. You can take care of him. Well, wow. That's what you can do. I'm not a pundit. I'm not a priest. I don't do rituals on behalf of people. I don't do any of those things. I'm not taking away anyone's job or livelihood. All I'm doing is taking care of Ganesha and the other deities and inviting people to come in here to do that as well. And for the people who live in New York or visiting New York who are Indian, who are Hindu, and this is a place where they can come and be with their gods and be with their culture and that's it so a lot of it is framing you know like you can look from the outside and go oh he's doing this that or the other but okay maybe talk to me first and then i'll tell you i'm not doing this that, or the other what i'm doing is i was given permission because i asked to take care of ganesha and that's it so and incredibly really, humble in my opinion and no it's not it's just it's a fact it's that's accurate. humility though. and um the um you spend a day with me you'll see how humble i am not and <laughs> the um the same is true with yoga this is where i'm going yoga is a gift from india that we've been given we have to take care of it here and we're not taking care of it if the truth be told we're not i mean look at like uh, the consumerism, the com- the commercialism, the branding, the, um, you know, the organizations like Yoga Alliance that are putting their stamp on everything. Um, there's a lot of ways in America we have not been taking care of this gift that we've been giving. Yoga is, it's more than a gift, it's a responsibility. It is a part of a, an immensity of cultural heritage that we have been privileged to take part in. And so as part of that privilege, we need to take care of it, and we're not in so many ways. So I think that's like pretty good conversation. Now, not everyone's going to want to have that conversation. Appreciate it. But, um, um, or even agree with me. But um, when we talk about the guru tradition, that's where we're coming to. You know, that's what, And that's why it's not our job to be gurus in America. It's our job to take care of this thing that we were taught and take care of it the best way that we possibly can. Um, and, uh, so that's my opinion. And then there's nuance, then there's nuance to come close, but now we're, now we're on a podcast. Yeah. But I think
1: that what you're saying is incredibly powerful. And, um, I consider myself in that we category when you say we need to look after just because of the color m- of my skin doesn't automatically make me a custodian of that and make me uh, an elevated being or understanding in any further way than, um, anyone that's born in the West. I was born in the West, you know, this, even though, yes, maybe I eat culturally Indian or um, maybe, yes, I can pronounce the mantras maybe a little more authentically with, with the correct, uh, you know, accents and right whatnot. Tongue. Yeah, that's all well and good, but I don't think that makes me any more entitled. And I think that that's where this cultural appropriation thing comes in. And, and, and a lot of people are talking about it in the yoga world where, you know, we culturally appropriate um, and we put our stamp on things that don't really belong to us, etc. But I think that that language um, cannot just be used by those who have brown skin. You know, because we, we're brought up in this culture also, we still have... Uh, we, you can't sit on both sides of the fence, basically, and say, yes, I'm I'm very much a, a British Indian, but at the same time, I'm more, you know, Vedic than you are. I think that that's the double standards in one sense. And, um, yeah, I just want to see what your thoughts are on cultural appropriation in the yoga scene, because that's becoming a massive topic, and maybe you have some thoughts on it.
0: Um, I, um... You know... The problem with like us Gen Xers and the boomers and stuff like that who started doing yoga 35 years ago was mm-hmm. like we came into yoga at a time when you only did yoga when if you were on a spiritual quest right there was no yoga market didn't exist. you and yoga and Hinduism were one and the same. there was like there was no distinction between those two things when I was learning yoga. In the nineteen eighties, those two things went together, and one of the reasons that we loved yoga was because it was part of Hinduism mm-hmm. and you know it was in Hinduism it was, mm-hmm. they were the same thing um and just like when people who went to Buddhism and they wanted to follow the Dalai Lama, they liked that it was Buddhism because there was there was some flavor there, um some rough that mm-hmm. was drawing them in, you know so um that's what i was taught to do you know that's how i was taught and that's how i was brought up yoga and Hinduism, so i don't you know he eh. so when people uh, have said i'm culturally appropriating stuff now i don't even know what to say sometimes because i'm like i'm sorry if i did something wrong this is what i was trained to do my my Indian <laughs> teachers and I'm. Um, So I've made definitely, I've made mistakes along the way. And, you know, times change. And as times change, you need to become sensitive to how what language is being used in the time that you live and change yourself accordingly to fit in with how times are changing. So a bad thing to do is to stay stuck in the time when you learn stuff and think that's how it is and that's how it always should be that is not a good way to live your life because then you live in the past and then old is gold and that's not necessarily true because a lot of the stuff happening back then wasn't good also yep so what i i don't really think anything too much about cultural appropriation because i'm i'm not a big part of that conversation but i know that it exists like t-shirts that say namaste in bed or whatever like that's just stupid right i mean appropriation aside that's just dumb whoever's making t-shirts like that don't it's just done yeah and um so there's a lot of things like that but there are worse things also you know there are things where um you know mm, magazines like yoga journal try to control the yoga narrative divorce it completely from anything Hindu or anything yeah. Indian for that matter. It's a tragedy almost. You know, yeah, it's terrible. So um, there's a lot of that thing. There's a lot going on like that. And um, and I fully acknowledge all that. And um, I, um, and, but for like how I'm doing it, what I'm doing with my life and responding to these things is to, you know, listen to how people talk about stuff. Younger generations uh younger in- Indian generation specifically um what their concerns are, what the issues are um what they feel needs to be reframed, and just listen to that and and um and act accordingly when when necessary um dialogue is always good, defending your position not always helpful no uh especially if you're living in the past so I live in New York city new york's a- always a changing place, so um You know, I'm used to change, and I'm happy to change along with it. And um, I think that change is a constant in the universe. We all know that. Mm -hmm. Change is a constant. But what is also a constant is awareness and observing change and being able to see what it is without getting lost in it sometimes. And then that's a good thing, too. So you have these two constants. This is Sankhya. You have, you have the constant of witness consciousness and you have the constant of change. And when witness consciousness gets lost in change, you have suffering. But when wit- we have to slow that down, when witness consciousness gets lost or mixed up in change, then you have suffering. You have identity with change. But when you see the distinction between those two and witness consciousness observes change and remains the observer of change, without getting lost in it, then you have freedom and happiness. Wow. So that might be an interesting way for people to try to live their lives a little bit. Yeah. Taking a little shift in direction. Yeah. This is a beautiful
1: space. Um, a temple in the heart of New York. It seems more and more that Hinduism and Vedic culture is moving away from deities as being personal. And moving more towards how deities symbolize uh, traits within us. And I want to get your thoughts on which one you think it is. Are they actually personalities? Or are they, uh, from your study of yoga texts, are they, uh, yeah, representations of things that are within us and therefore no need for worship? I kind of know where I'm going with this. I kind of know where you're going to go with this,
0: but I thought it'd be interesting to put it in. <laughs> so I've heard a few things and I don't have any personal opinions on this All mm-hmm. well, the only opinions I have are the ones that have been that given to me by the people I've learned about worship from. So I learned, um, first to chant the Ganapati Atarva which is the Ganesha Upanishad central to the worship of our deity here from a Sanskrit teacher and philosophy professor in Mysore in. um, the uh in around 1997 and what he said to me was the Ganesha that we're worshiping outside is none other than your own heart he said so you learn to worship the form but the form you worship is a manifestation a reflection not a symbol but a reflection of your own heart that makes sense mm-hmm. that's very beautiful Um, Deepak Chopra says that Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to say that the deities and the mantras associated with them were not external, but through chanting mantras, we were invoking the devas, the beings of light, the beings who maintain cosmic order. We were invoking them to awaken within our subtle bodies and so that's where the devas live. Uh, they live in the subtle body um, and in the causal body as well. But they
1: cannot be also separate as well as personalities, like as as and of themselves without
0: being united within our subtle bodies? Well, it all depends on the tradition that you're speaking about. From some traditions, if a tradition is, um, say, qualified non-dualism or a dualistic system, then there will be separation and then the the devas or the divine or bhagavan will be in an independent personality separate from the individual jiva in a non-dualistic formulation then as above so below everything is contained within everything so there can be the personality of the deva but that personality also exists within you both can exist simultaneously but at the end of the day everything will all be one right that's a non-dualistic viewpoint now in non-dualism you find the idea of a um, saguna and nirguna saguna is with form these will be the devas and this is a way to move towards brahman absolute non-dual consciousness um through form and then there's nirguna, without form, which is suchit ananda Truth, consciousness, bliss, without form. Um, and that ideation is a little more difficult to form a personal relationship or have an experience of. And with form, as Krishna says in Gita, with form will be a little bit easier to have a relationship with. But that they both lead towards the same thing. So this is from this non-dual perspective. Now, but we have Shankaracharya, we have Vallabhacharya, we have Nimbarka, we have Ramanuja, Madhva. we have we have Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. <laughs> Everyone's going to have slightly different um, instructions for us to follow about how to form these relationships. I'm not even say slightly different philosophies, but there's slightly different paths to travel about how to form a relationship with consciousness, or with the divine, or with our own inner being. And so then, whichever one of those things we happen to come across that we resonate with that seem to draw us in, then that's what we follow.
1: We've come to this uh, New Age place whereby previously uh, in the 60s we had very strong preachers of these philosophies. We had the non-dual, we had the personal aspects of divinity being shared, um, various teachers, Bhaktivedanta Swami uh, being in the personal lineage from which I originate, I I fall in that category, personalism. Um, Now I feel that we live in a little more of an open space and maybe it's also a confusing space because I think a lot of people are interested in Vedic spirituality, Hindu philosophy, but then also don't want to study, don't want to read. And I think that that's been a Um, a symptom of our age is a lack of discipline, uh, a lack of desire to want to really study something and just kind of go with what feels good. And so how do you feel that the modern era of spiritualists should navigate? Do you think that there should be a drilling down of reading more? Do you think that that is a staple of people's spirituality? Like are books really the basis or can people just go on, yeah, feeling, feeling and yeah, you can see where I'm going with this
0: but. I think it all depends on what they want to do. You know, if they want to learn about Hindu philosophy and Hindu traditions, then they need to read. If they just want to know themselves and they want to know themselves free from the constraints of any narratives, then they can go off and do that and then they don't have to read anything. How? Um, Well, there has to be some reading involved, no? I don't know. I mean, I haven't done it. I read a lot. I love reading. <laughs> uh, I read I read every day. Right. Uh, reading is, you know, is good for you. My wife, on the other hand, she doesn't like reading. Okay. She doesn't read. Um, she meditate. Okay. But there has to be some basis, no, from... I, I can't say that there has to be anything because I am not a liberated or enlightened person. Okay. I am my own particular type of a sadhaka. And um, so I don't know what there has to be. But if you're following in a tradition or want to follow in a tradition or want to call something yoga, then you have to do something. Right. You can't call it yoga and say, but I have nothing to do with all this other stuff, it's my own yoga. Well, how do you even know the word yoga? You only know the word yoga because someone else said it and that other person might've known something about yoga. Mm. So we only have the word yoga because of India that's a fact mm-hmm. we don't have that word from anywhere else so if you want to use that word then you better study and if you don't want to be involved in any of the things associated with that tradition fine don't use the word yoga well it's something else all something else and uh, you know the word meditation that doesn't belong to the Hindu tradition you know anyone can call whatever they want actually isn't there isn't there like dhyana yeah, well, there is the word jnana, Um but...
1: We're in a temple setting, so this is going to have... There's going to be bells. There's going to be bells. Let there be bells. Let the... Yeah,
0: but the, the word, the word jhana doesn't really translate as meditation. Okay. Um, it It's more of something that you're doing with your awareness. It's kind of a defocused awareness. Uh, dharana is a focused concentration, a focused attention. And the jhana is an expanded awareness where the object remains, but you have a particular relationship with it. The word meditation we see in the Christian traditions and Judeo-Christian traditions. So that's a word from outside of the Hindu culture, been applied to yoga. Social media and
1: spirituality. I'm trying my best to share. I have to try and make things relevant. I have to try and make them accessible. I have to try and make them entertaining. Does the age of social media scare you? Does it worry you that, um, authenticity gets lost? Do you think that it has no place in spirituality?
0: I, you know, I think in every age, there's going to be a shift of the way that information is transferred with the way that teachings are communicated right now we live in an age where things are being communicated through this thing called social media um we have instagram and youtube and twitter and all sorts of things like that um there's a lot of interesting stuff being communicated and there's a lot of stuff being communicated which isn't so good um, or isn't even factual or isn't even correct which is why there are so many different types of um of um uh you know people who are out there who are debunking the stuff that they see on, you know, YouTube or Twitter, on Instagram or whatever the thing, this is this person said, but here's why it's not accurate. Right. Okay. But that's no different than what happened in philosophy for hundreds of years before that, where someone would write a book and someone else would write a book saying this is where they've gone wrong. And then another person would write another book (laughs) and say, "Uh, maybe I did go wrong here, there, or the other, and now here are my views on it. So we've always been in these uh, circumstances where there are, you know, there's a trading off of viewpoints back and forth, um, and and corrections of viewpoints and arguing about viewpoints. But we've never been in an age where it's been so easy for anyone to do that. And that's the age where we live in now, where it's it's immensely easy for anyone to do that, whether they've studied or not studied or. Everyone's an expert. Everyone's an expert or everyone's an idiot and that's the category I put myself into. <laughs> so, YouTube scares me. Although, YouTube is, I love YouTube. Yeah. I mean, it's my go-to. Like, yeah. if I want to listen to music, I go on to YouTube, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I feel that YouTube kind of knows me. Uh-huh. Knows what I want to hear. <laughs> and, um, but I don't like having my own stuff on YouTube because, I mean, I know you can turn off comments and stuff like that, but, um, you know, I don't like negative comments and i don't like the things that arise from people like things are not often not dialogue friendly on these platforms and i just want to kind of exist in dialogue friendly places where i'm happy to be wrong but if i'm wrong i don't want someone to say you're a total idiot you know what's this white guy doing teaching yoga or chanting a month or whatever like that's not the dialogue I want to be in. So I just kind of avoid those spaces where I'm exposing myself to that. I like Instagram, even though the algorithms are a little bit annoying and frustrating. Um, it's easy to share things which are useful or helpful or fun. And every once in a while, like you learn something good. And I've met some great friends on Instagram. Also, I have a lot of friends in India. I Instagram. made you through Instagram. Totally. This wouldn't have happened without Instagram. I mean, totally. I've made such good friends in the yoga world, in the Hindu world, in the spiritual world on Instagram. Like, I like that platform. Um, I haven't really engaged in YouTube to have that type of a thing happen. Yeah. But also, I just, you know, anyway, so I'm rambling now. I don't use Twitter, even though I have an account. Okay. And I don't use TikTok because I don't have the time. I barely have time for Instagram. Um, but does does social media scare me? um only youtube the rest of it doesn't i <laughs> know i'm getting you for christmas um what a youtube yeah <laughs> can you can get me a youtube in a box
1: yeah we'll get you a channel um uh, let's do some quick fire you for a quick fire round god i'm terrible at these go ahead one word one uh one word one, one sentence. word oh my god one word one sentence but i always i'm, I'm bad at these myself right. so if it, it rolls on it rolls on uh, what's something that you are working through at the moment in your current spirituality? Working through something that you're working through personally. Something I'm
0: working through personally. One thing. I've forgotten mm-hmm. like a box of things. It could be a box. <laughs> um, I don't know. Pass next.
1: No one's going to do that. Because <laughs> it's Eddie Stern, I'm like, okay, fine, that's fine. Um, in short, what legacy do you want to leave behind? Oh, uh, this
0: temple would be nice to leave behind. Do you have a vision for it? Yeah, I'd like this to go from generation to generation. This temple should be, this shouldn't be, this isn't my temple. This is Ganesha's temple. I, w- I would love for the Hindu community of New York to feel that it's their temple too, and it's their temple to pass down from generation to generation. This should not be something that only is here because it's my endeavor. It's not, um, this temple should be here because it is the endeavor of Hinduism to be present in any location where there are Indian people who need to connect with their deities, their personal deities, their culture, their everything. So I would like this temple to live for a long time and i would like it to be in the hands of people who want it to live for a long time beautiful and all i want to do is build the space and 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 be able to enjoy worshiping ganesha until it's time for me to not worship anymore and then other people should continue because temples are are not about one person or even a few people temples are about community tradition the living presence of the deity and a uh, temple is um, a devalaya. Uh, it's a resting place of the devas where they come and they remain there. And because they're there, you have to take care of them. You've invited them. Now you have to take care of them. Then it's a responsibility to pull in all the necessary people who will continue to take care of them over long periods of time. And so that would be my one real wish for something to to have been, not to leave behind, but to have been a part of very nicely said.
1: Favorite One well, That's one word, right? Yeah. One word, one sentence. We'll take it. We'll take it. We'll pass. We'll get the stamp. <laughs> um, favorite Yoda sutra.
0: Oh, this is easy. Go on. And this is the meditation on the self-effulgent light at the heart, which is, as I said, self-effulgent, self-luminous, bereft of sorrow and always present. Mm. love it something you should deeply value
1: in your life just don't value it anymore are these like so hard for everybody no you're just a deeply thoughtful person
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, you're not a shallow person like this is the hardest task I've had like almost ever by the way,
1: not to say that all the other guests have been shallow. It's just, I know Eddie is... is uh,
0: no, that's cool. You just dissed every single person who's ever been on your podcast. Pronouns, pronouns. <laughs> not I'm not doing that. That's not my intention. Uh, something I don't value no, anymore. Something I used to, to value. value. Yeah. That I used to value. Fame. Oh, man. I should have been more prepared for this podcast. You didn't even <laughs> tell me these questions. That's the whole idea. All right, pass. <laughs> <laughs> you <can't> do that, <laughs> uh, I know. I, I, I know it's like you were. He
1: was a good guest up until the end. Yeah, basically, and until the shallow everything. stuff. Everything until all the entertainment came in and the shallow exactly. stuff came in. And all of a sudden, like I mean, crickets. <laughs> okay, if you could create one law
0: that everyone had to follow, one law that everyone had to follow, I mean. But if it's a law and they had to follow it, then you're going to force people to do things maybe they don't want to do. Right. And then what's going to happen? Like if you can say like, oh, this law is going to be kindness. Uh, The law is everyone has to be kind to each other. Then what if kindness is imposed on you? Then all of a sudden it's like a prison. It's not so kind to be imposed. Not so kind anymore. So I don't know. That's a tough one. I think like throwing philosophy, you're throwing like philosophy questions at me disguised as rapid fire these are like koan basically exactly i realized that like this was actually going to be i was going to be meeting with my zen priest and you're like throwing Koan's at me and i'm failing every koan and you're going to be like grasshopper you'll be like grasshopper go back and meditate for another 12 go sweep the temple floors for 12 more years and come back and try to pass these tests again. We'll do this again a year from now. I so. Yeah. Give me twelve. I, that's why I'm here in the temple, just <laughs> sweeping floors, taking care of Gnesset. Because I'm not ready for this kind of rapid fire intensity. I just don't know how. To, I don't know how to handle it. Uh, with what? That, what? <laughs> it was one law that what a <laughs> guy doing. A law, Laws have to. You have to choose your law. Choose your own laws, people. But
1: that's going to cause anarchy anyway. Well, you know,
0: anarchy. What define anarchy?
1: Chaos. uh, uh, No rules means that uh, utilitarianism, the the peak of utilitarianism, like everyone pleasing themselves means that no one's happy because everyone's
0: just trying to be greedier for themselves. I don't think that's a definition of anarchy. Anarchy is not about greed. No. No. We'll have to look it up. I don't remember. When I was the punk rocker, I knew what the definition of anarchy was. Um, you know, yeah, no, laws are, laws are important. Go ahead, look it up. We have internet. Laws are important. Um, and, um, you know, the certain laws will outlive their usefulness, right? You know, so you have laws like laws that are going to be imposed culturally or societally so that people can live together with some common denominator and then you have spiritual laws which are going to be your own principles and precepts that you're following and those two are going to be like different so the laws of society are if there's a red light you know don't cross don't litter put your trash in here but then there are other laws that are going to be um outlive their utility like the second amendment in the united states the right to bear harms no one needs to carry a gun in america uh There are more children killed by gun violence than any other cause of death Mm. in this country. So, like, there's a law that people are still following, and a lot of people think this is a really good law. Yeah, the right to bear arms, that's a good one. It's horrible. And there's no developed country in the world which allows the amount of firearms to be prevalent in public that America does, and we're the only country. It actually scares
1: me to come here. It terrifies me, actually, to come to the U.S. is actually scary because just... The amount of violence based on guns that has happened here.
0: It's horrifying. It's
1: it's terrifying. It's
0: horrifying. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think about laws quite a bit, actually. You know, I think it's a good question. And so I can't say what is one law that I would say everyone should follow um, unless everyone wants to choose to follow that law. Then I'm going to say, yes, uh, if everyone's going to choose to follow this law, I'm going to say kindness. Kindness is, is a good law. Be kind to each other. And then if everyone would, would agree to choose that law, then I say then it doesn't actually need to be a law because we've all chosen to do it. Um, but there are certain things that, you know, for example, hmm? Yama, which some people call the laws, are, are restrictions. They're not really... A restriction. They're not. They're observances and they're not law. They're mm-hmm. not law There's a difference. And they're not commandment. They're very different than the Ten Commandments. But they're things that you observe in order to bring equilibrium to the mind so that you can have um, better relationships with the world and the people around you and your own self through Niyama is gonna be relationship with yourself and Yama relationship with the world around you. How do we interrelate? How do we we, um, co-regulate each other through behavior? Because the way I behave towards you is going to determine to a certain degree how you respond in close towards me. This is co-regulation. So when we look at the yamas, when we look at nonviolence or ahimsa and honesty and non-stealing and um, sexual responsibility and non-covetedness or not being greedy, um, these are all co-regulational behaviors that we use between each other to elevate society. Their observances. Yeah, they're like observances. Like okay, reframing the
1: question, what one observance mm. would you want everyone to follow?
0: Thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness. Now that wasn't so difficult. But no. to... just ask the right question, man. Damn it. Come on. I'm in the I'm with the wrong person. I'm getting No, you know what Get happened out. was actually <laughs> um, Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein. Uh-huh. Um, I believe I don't know where they are. Gertrude Stein was on her deathbed. Uh And, you know, when people are dying, they know the answers to everything, usually. And so Alice B. Toklas said to her, "Um, Gertrude, what's the answer? What's the answer? And Gertrude Stein said, what's the question? Mm -hmm. So we ask the right questions, then we get the, you know, the accurate answers. I'm not saying you asked me the wrong question. I'm just sharing the story. But I like that story because... I think about that um, that story often if um, I'm going to give a lecture or talk about something. Okay. You don't want to just talk randomly about something, but is the topic, is the thing you're talking about, is it addressing a pressing need or pressing question? Is there something that needs to be thought about, deliberated on, that can be elucidated through conversation and dialogue or discussion? And um, so what's the question? Now that's a good one because in, in the philosophical traditions of India, we have this first question of who am I? Who am I? What is my purpose? We have four stages of life, dharma, artha, kama and moksha. And in each of these four stages, who am I in each of these four stages? And what do I need to adhere to and think about in each of these four stages? So there's a lot of questioning that comes in to Hinduism. A lot of questioning that comes into the entirety of the yoga tradition. So what happens with liberation, according to some, you don't get an answer. The questions fall away because you have the experience of wholeness or of truly or of God, whatever you might be experiencing or be blessed to experience. The question evaporates. There's not an answer because there's not just one answer. There just is. And just is is not an answer. It's a state. A continual state which is unfolding. So, uh,
1: this has been a unique podcast. Why? Because I think that, uh, I mean, yeah, I feel, I mean, this is not uh, uh, an empty glorification. Please don't think of it as just cheap glorification, but I think that you're thinking about life in in, um, different ways than most. And I think that that's really valuable to have that train of thought. And um, yeah, get on YouTube. (laughs) I think more people want to hear it. I mean, this has been really educational for me and really valuable for me. So um, I hope it has been for you also as the viewer.
0: And if you have questions, I don't know, are they allowed to ask questions? Yeah, 100%. I love questions. Where can they get? I just don't like giving one-word answers. I'm terrible at that. That's fine. I'm horrible at. I'm horrible at sound bites. Ah, uh, no. They can say, definitely send me questions. Yeah. Why? Send them to you, and you can ask me them, and then but, we'll we'll follow up with with the answer.
1: Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you had a educational experience as I did. I hope it was insightful. I hope it was thought provoking. I hope it was. Um, it gave you an insight beyond the shallow nature of the modern way in which Hindu yoga. Uh, Vedic has been presented and I hope that you stay connected with Eddie I think he's a phenomenal person someone that has access to a wealth of knowledge but also makes it very accessible in my opinion so um, thank you so much Eddie
0: thank you so much for having me on this is a really enjoyable conversation and I'll see you all on
1: YouTube (laughs) (laughs) peace out everyone see you on the next episode